The best eyewitness account of the events on St. Peter's Field was written by the Reverend Edward Stanley. This is partly because Stanley was a dispassionate, almost accidental witness, and partly because his vantage point gave him an excellent view of the attack on the crowd. Stanley was, at the time, rector of Alderley in Cheshire. He had come to Manchester to visit Mr. Buxton, apparently without knowing that a meeting was to take place, or that Mr. Buxton would play host to the magistrates that day. He observed the Peterloo massacre from an upstairs window, above the room in which the magistrates were gathered. His account was written for circulation among his friends, and was not published until it appeared in Francis Bruton's Three Accounts of Peterloo in 1921. Stanley was also a witness at the action for assault brought by the wounded Thomas Redford against Hugh Hornby Burley and three members of the Manchester Yeomanry in 1822. The transcript of Stanley's evidence was also reprinted in Bruton's three accounts. Soon after one o'clock on the 16th of August, I went to call on Mr Buxton, with whom I had some private business. I was directed to his house overlooking St. Peter's Field, where I unexpectedly found the magistrates assembled. I went up to their room and remained there seven or eight minutes. I met Mr. Buxton on the steps of his house, not at all aware till then that his residence was at or near the place of meeting. I had been directed to his shop considerably beyond the square to which I was proceeding. I state this to prove that what I afterwards saw was purely accidental, and that I had no previous intention of witnessing in detail the transactions of the day. As I came from the bottom of Alport Street, my original directions were indeed to pass through St. Peter's Field as the shortest line but I had taken a circuitous route to avoid the meeting, which led me to the corner of it near Mr. Buxton's house. Hunt was not then arrived. A murmur running through the crowd prepared us for his approach. A numerous vanguard preceded him, and in a few moments the barouche appeared in which he sat with his coadjutors, male and female. A tremendous shout instantly welcomed him. He proceeded slowly towards the hustings. On approaching the knot of constables, the carriage stopped a short time, I conceive from the difficulty of making way through a band of men who were little inclined to fall back for his admission. The barouche at length attained its position close to the hustings, and the speakers stepped forth the female, as far as I can recollect, still remaining on the driver's seat with a banner in her hand. I then left the magistrates and went to a room immediately above them, commanding a bird's-eye view of the whole area, in which every movement and every object was distinctly visible. In the centre were the hustings, surrounded, to all appearance, by a numerous body of constables easily distinguished by their respectable dress, staves of office, and hats on. It has been stated upon evidence, which I should be unwilling to discredit, that the body of persons more immediately in contact with the hustings were of Hunt's party. 
My reasons for believing them at the time to be, as I was told, special constables, were because they resembled them in appearance, were connected in their lines, had their hats on, and staves of office occasionally appeared amongst them. Mr. Hay, in his official letter, says, a body of special constables took their ground, about two hundred in number, close to the hustings, from whence there was a line of communication to the house where we were. This is precisely my view of the case. Doubtless, had the communication been cut, he would have noticed it. The elevation of the hustings, of course, eclipsed the portion of the space immediately beyond them, so as to prevent my seeing, and consequently asserting positively, whether they were completely surrounded by this chain of constables. The chain from this its main body was continued in a double line, two or three deep, forming an avenue to Mr. Buxton's house, by which there seemed to be free and uninterrupted access to and from the hustings. Had any interruption of their communication occurred previous to the change, I think I must have perceived it from the commanding position I occupied. A vast concourse of people in a close and compact mass surrounded the hustings and constables, pressing upon each other apparently with a view to be as near the speakers as possible. They were generally speaking bareheaded, probably for the purpose of giving those behind them a better view. Between the outside of this mob and the sides of the area, the space was comparatively unoccupied. Stragglers were indeed numerous, but not so as to amount to anything like a crowd, or to create interruption to foot passengers. Round the edges of the square, more compact masses of people were assembled, the greater part of whom appeared to be spectators. The radical banners and caps of liberty were conspicuous in different parts of the concentrated mob stationed according to the order in which the respective bands to which they belonged had entered the ground and taken up their positions. After the orators had ascended the hustings, a few minutes were taken up in preparing for the business of the day, and then Hunt began his address. I could distinctly hear his voice, but was too distant to distinguish his words. He had not spoken above a minute or two before I heard a report in the room that the cavalry was sent for. The messengers, we were told, might be seen from a back window. I ran to that window, from which I could see the road leading to a timber yard, I believe, at no great distance, where, as I entered the town, I had observed the Manchester Yeomanry stationed. I saw three horsemen ride off, one towards the timber-yard, the others in the direction which I knew led to the cantonments of other cavalry. I immediately returned to the front window, anxiously awaiting the result. A slight commotion among the body of spectators, chiefly women, who occupied a mound of raised, broken ground on the left and to the rear of the orators, convinced me they saw something which excited their fears. Many jumped down, and they soon dispersed more rapidly. By this time the alarm was quickly spreading, and I heard several voices exclaiming, The soldiers! The soldiers! Another moment brought the cavalry into the field on a gallop, 
which they continued till the word was given for halting them, about the middle of the space which I before noticed as partially occupied by stragglers. Some, by being better mounted or rather in advance, might have been more moderate in their pace, but generally speaking it was very rapid, and I use the word gallop as conveying the best idea of their approach. They halted in great disorder, and so continued for the few minutes they remained. This disorder was attributed by several persons in the room to the undisciplined state of their horses. Little accustomed to act together, and probably frightened by the shout of the populace which greeted their arrival. Hunt had evidently seen their approach. His hand had been pointed towards them, and it was clear from his gestures that he was addressing the mob respecting their interference. His words, whatever they were, excited a shout from those immediately about him, which was re-echoed with fearful animation by the rest of the multitude. Ere that had subsided, the cavalry, the loyal spectators, and the special constables cheered loudly in return, and a pause ensued of about a minute or two. An officer and some few others then advanced rather in front of the troop, formed, as I before said, in much disorder, and with scarcely the semblance of line. Their sabres glistened in the air, and on they went, direct for the hustings. At first, i.e. for a very few paces, their movement was not rapid, and there was some show of an attempt to follow their officer in regular succession, five or six abreast. But as Mr. Francis Phillips in his pamphlet observes, they soon increased their speed, and with a zeal and ardour which might naturally be expected from men acting with delegated power against a foe by whom it is understood they had long been insulted with taunts of cowardice, continued their course, seeming individually to vie with each other which should be first. Some stragglers, I have remarked, occupied the space in which they halted. On the commencement of the charge, these fled in all directions, and I presume escaped, with the exception of a woman who had been standing ten or twelve yards in front. As the troop passed, her body was left, to all appearance lifeless, and there remained till the close of the business, when, as it was no great distance from the house, I went towards her. Two men were then in the act of raising her up. Whether she was actually dead or not, I cannot say, but no symptoms of life were visible at the time I last saw her. I am particular in mentioning these minute circumstances, because in this and some other points in which I could not be mistaken, I have been strongly contradicted. As the cavalry approached the dense mass of people, they used their utmost efforts to escape. But so closely were they pressed in opposite directions by the soldiers, the special constables, the position of the hustings, and their own immense numbers, that immediate escape was impossible. The rapid course of the troop was of course impeded when it came in contact with the mob, but a passage was forced in less than a minute. So rapid indeed was it, that the guard of constables close to the hustings shared the fate of the rest. On their arrival at the hustings a scene of dreadful confusion ensued. The orators fell or were forced off the scaffold in quick succession, 
Fortunately for them, the stage being rather elevated, they were in great degree beyond the reach of the many swords which gleamed around them. Hunt fell, or threw himself, among the constables, and was driven or dragged as fast as possible down the avenue which communicated with the magistrate's house. His associates were hurried after him in a similar manner. By this time so much dust had arisen that no accurate account can be given of what further took place at that particular spot. The square was now covered with the flying multitude. Though still in parts, the banners and caps of liberty were surrounded by groups. The Manchester Yeomanry had already taken possession of the hustings, when the Cheshire Yeomanry entered on my left in excellent order, and formed in the rear of the hustings as well as could be expected, considering the crowds who were now pressing in all directions, and filling up the space hitherto partially occupied. The 15th Dragoons appeared nearly at the same moment, and paused rather than halted on our left, parallel to the row of houses. They then pressed forward, crossing the avenue of constables, which opened to let them through, and bent their course towards the Manchester Yeomanry. The people were now in a state of utter rout and confusion, leaving the ground strewed with hats and shoes, and hundreds were thrown down in the attempt to escape. The cavalry were hurrying about in all directions, completing the work of dispersion, which, to use the words given in Wheeler's Manchester Chronicle, referred to by Mr. Francis Phillips, was effected in so short a space of time as to appear as if done by magic. I saw nothing that gave me an idea of resistance, except in one or two spots where they showed some disinclination to abandon the banners. These impulses, however, were but momentary, and banner after banner fell into the hands of the military power. It has been often asked when and where the cavalry struck the people. I can only say that from the moment they began to force their way through the crowd towards the hustings, swords were up and swords were down. But whether they fell with the sharp or flat side, of course, I cannot pretend to give an opinion. The extent of their defence may perhaps best be estimated by the gallant conduct which I particularly noticed of a man on horseback, apparently a gentleman's servant. Unarmed, as far as I could perceive, he separated from the cavalry, and rode directly into the compact body of people collected round a banner. A scuffle ensued, highly interesting. The banner rose and fell repeatedly, but ultimately fell into his hands, and he galloped off with it in triumph. During the whole of this confusion, heightened at its close by the rattle of some artillery crossing the square, shrieks were heard in all directions, and as the crowd of people dispersed, the effects of the conflict became visible. On quitting the ground, I for the first time observed that strong bodies of infantry were posted in the street on opposite sides of the square. Their appearance might probably have increased the alarm, and would certainly have impeded the progress of a mob wishing to retreat in either of those directions, 
When I saw them, they were resting on their arms, and I believe they remained stationary, taking no part in the transaction. Some were seen bleeding on the ground, and unable to rise. Others, less seriously injured, but faint with the loss of blood, were retiring slowly, or leaning upon others for support. One special constable, with a cut down his head, was brought to Mr. Buxton's house. I saw several others in the passage congratulating themselves on their narrow escape, and showing the marks of sabre cuts on their hats. I saw no firearms, but distinctly heard four or five shots towards the close of the business, on the opposite side of the square beyond the hustings, but nobody could inform me by whom they were fired. The whole of this extraordinary scene was the work of a few minutes. The rapid succession of so many important incidents in this short space of time, the peculiar character of each depending so much on the variation of a few instants in the detail, sufficiently account for the very contradictory statements that have been given. Added to which it should be observed that no spectator on the ground could possibly form a just and correct idea of what was passing. When below, I could not have observed anything accurately beyond a few yards around me, and it was only by ascending to the upper rooms of Mr. Buxton's house that I could form a just and correct idea of almost every point which has since afforded so much discussion and contention. The cavalry were now collected in different parts of the area. The centre, but a few minutes before crowded to excess, was utterly deserted. Groups of radicals were still seen assembled on the outskirts, screening themselves behind logs of timber or mingling with the spectators on the pavement. The constables remained in a body in front of the house waiting for the reappearance of Hunt, who, with his colleagues, was secured in a small parlour opening into the passage to which I had now descended. I believe the original intention was to send him to the New Bailey in a carriage, but it was soon after decided that he should walk. When this was made known, it was received with shouts of approbation, and bring him out, let the rebel walk, was heard from all quarters. At length he came forth, and notwithstanding the blows he had received in running the gauntlet down the avenue of constables, I thought I could perceive a smile of triumph on his countenance. A person, Nadine, I believe, offered to take his arm, but he drew himself back, and in a sort of whisper said, No, no, that's rather too good a thing, or words to that effect. He then left the house, and I soon afterwards also went away. I saw no symptoms of riot or disturbances before the meeting. The impression on my mind was that the people were sullenly peaceful, and I had an excellent opportunity of forming an opinion by suddenly coming in contact with a large body from Ashton, who met me in Moseley Street as I entered the town. On entering Moseley Street at twelve o'clock, I stopped to question some persons on the footway respecting the proceedings of the day. When about to proceed, I was recommended to move from the middle of the street to the path, 
as the mob were advancing. I declined, suspecting my advisers might be radicals, adding, I am on the king's highway, and shall remain where I am. I mention this because I have heard it reported that I was insulted by the Ashton people, which may have originated from the above account. They were walking at a moderate pace, six or seven abreast, arm in arm, which enabled them to keep some sort of regularity in their march. I was soon surrounded by them as I passed, and though my horse showed a good deal of alarm, particularly at their band and flags, they broke rank and offered no molestation whatever. As soon, however, as I had quitted Mr. Buxton's house at the conclusion of the business, I found them in a very different state of feeling. I heard repeated vows of revenge. You took us unprepared. We were unarmed today, and it is your day. But when we meet again, the day shall be ours. How far this declaration of being unarmed men may be relied upon, I cannot pretend to say. I certainly saw nothing like arms either at or before the meeting. Their sticks were, as far as came under my observation, common walking sticks. That some, however, were armed, I can have no doubt, as a constable, when I was leaving Mr. Buxton's house, showed me a couple of short skewers or daggers fixed in wooden handles, which he had taken in the fray. I have heard from the most respectable authority that the cavalry were assailed by stones during the short time they halted previous to their charge. I do not wish to contradict positive assertions. What a person sees must be true. My evidence on that point can only be negative. I certainly saw nothing of the sort, and yet my eyes were fixed most steadily upon them, and I think that I must have seen any stone larger than a pebble at the short distance at which I stood, from thirty to fifty yards, and the commanding view I had. I indeed saw no missile weapons used throughout the whole transaction, but as I have before stated, the dust at the hustings soon partially obscured everything that took place near that particular spot, but no doubt the people defended themselves to the best of their power, as it was absolutely impossible for them to get away and give the cavalry a clear passage, till the outer part of the mob had fallen back. No blame can be fairly attributed to the soldiers for wounding the constables as well as the radicals, since the chief distinguishing mark, the former being covered and the latter uncovered, soon ceased to exist. Every man, for obvious reasons, covering himself in haste the moment the dispersion commenced. Such are the leading features of this event to which I can speak positively. Comments and opinions I have avoided as much as possible, my object being to give a clear and impartial account of facts which, whether for or against the adopted conclusions of either party, must speak for themselves. Stanley's evidence at the trial of Hugh Hornby Burley. Stanley is first questioned by Mr. Sergeant Blackburn on behalf of Thomas Redford, who had identified Burley and the other defendants as his attackers on St. Peter's Field, and then by Mr. Sergeant Hullock for the defence. Second day of the trial. The Reverend Edward Stanley examined by Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. 
counsel for the plaintiff. You, I believe, are the rector of Alderley in Cheshire? I am. Brother to Sir Thomas Stanley? Brother to Sir John Stanley. On the 16th of August, 1819, had you any business with Mr. Buxton? I had. How far do you live from Manchester? Between 15 and 16 miles. You came into Manchester on the morning. About what time? As near 12 o'clock as possible, I entered Moseley Street. In your passage up Moseley Street, did you meet with any number of people? I did. Walking? Walking. In what manner? They were coming down the street walking in a procession, six or seven or eight abreast, and arm in arm. Were you on horseback? I was. Was there any interruption to your passage? No. Should I explain? Tell us the reason. As I was going down the street, some persons on the pavement desired me... I do not wish to know what the persons on the pavement desired you to do. I do not wish you to tell us the conversation, but simply to relate what happened. I passed through them. By their opening to give you way? Certainly. Did you go on that day to Mr. Buxton's house, and at what time did you get there? I got to Mr. Buxton's house, I should think, a quarter after one. Did you go into a room there where the magistrates were assembled? I did. How long did you remain there? I should think about from eight to ten minutes. During the time you were in the room, did Mr. Hunt arrive on the ground? He was called Mr. Hunt. He was in a barouche. And a multitude accompanying him? A vast multitude. I believe there was a cheer given by the populace at the time when he did arrive? A tremendous shout. Did you remain in the room, or did you go elsewhere? I did not remain there. I went into the room above it. Were there any other persons in the room besides you? Several. Did you see the Manchester Yeomanry come onto the ground? I did. And form in front of Mr. Buxton's house? They formed with their left flank a little to the right of the special constables, and a few yards to the right of Mr. Buxton's house. You say to the left of the line of special constables? Their left flank was on the right of Mr. Buxton's house. You saw the line of constables. Where did it extend to? It extended from the door of Mr. Buxton's house, apparently up to the hustings. Was there more than one line of constables? There were two lines of constables. What was the interval between them? Near Mr. Buxton's house and the mob, three or four feet. Afterwards, the line was closed by the pressure of the mob, expanding again when they came near the hustings? According to my observation, to the best of my judgment, such is the impression on my mind. Of course, you saw the people collected? Certainly. In a large mass? In a very large mass. What was it enabled you to distinguish the special constables from the rest? They were superior-dressed people, had their hats on, and their staffs were constantly appearing, and they were nearer the hustings. And the people round the hustings had their hats off? My general impression is all, to speak accurately. The people on this side of the area of St. Peter's Field were not so numerous? There were more stragglers and no crowd. You saw colours and caps of liberty on the ground? I did. What number of either the one or the other? Perhaps you do not distinctly recollect. 
I cannot say. You heard Mr. Hunt speak? No, I could just hear his voice, but I was not able to distinguish what he said. How long had that taken place before you saw the cavalry advance towards the hustings? From their halt, I should think three minutes. From the time you heard Mr. Hunt? Not from the time I heard Mr. Hunt. He was speaking before I arrived. Then from the time of the halt? Two or three minutes. When you saw them advance towards the hustings, with what speed did they go? They were formed in an irregular mass. Those on the left advanced in some sort of order. They went on at first for a few paces at no very quick pace, but they soon increased their speed till it became a sort of rush or race amongst them all towards the hustings. Did you observe the effect this had upon the people, whether it caused them to disperse or not? They could not disperse instantly. But on the outside of them? On the right, in front of the hustings, they immediately began to melt away, as it were, as far as they could at the extreme. The outward edge of the meeting? The outward edge, in front of the hustings. Did you observe the cavalry when they got first among the thick part of the meeting? Their speed was diminished as soon as they came in contact with the dense mob. Well? But they worked their way to the hustings still, as fast, under existing circumstances, as they could. From the place in which you were, I believe you had a very commanding view of the hustings. I looked down upon it like a map. I understand you. You had also been in a room below that and looked through there? I had. Which, in your opinion, was the better place for a correct observation of what passed after the meeting? Decidedly the highest room. Did you watch the advance of the cavalry from their place up to the hustings? I did. Did you see either sticks or stones or anything of the kind used against the cavalry in their advance up to the hustings? Certainly not. Did you see any resistance whatever to the cavalry except the thickness of the meeting? None. Do I understand you to say you saw them surround the hustings or not? Surround, I could not say, for the other side of the hustings, of course, was partially eclipsed by the people upon it. But you saw them encircle part? Encircle part. Did you see what was done when they got there? Yes. Will you tell us what it was that you saw done? I saw the swords up and down, the orators tumbled or thrown over, and the mob dispersed. In your judgment, what length of time elapsed between the cavalry first setting off into the meeting and the time of their complete dispersion? Starting from their halt to the complete dispersion of the meeting, I should think from three to five minutes, but I cannot speak to a minute. In your judgment, it took from three to five minutes. You did not observe it by a watch? No. Did you see any other troops come into the field? I did. What were they? Mr. Justice Holroyd. He says he saw what? Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. Other troops come into the field. When was it that you saw them come into the field? When the mob around the hustings were dispersing rapidly, and I think Mr. Hunt was taken off. What were those troops that you saw come into the ground then? First came in, on the left of Mr. Buxton's row of houses, the Cheshire Yeomanry, who filed to the left. Mr. Justice Holroyd. You mean to the left, looking from the house, then? From the house. 
Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. Where did the Cheshire Yeomanry take up their position when they came on the ground? They took up their position in the rear of the hustings, rather in advance, I think, of some mounds of earth. Do you know Windmill Street? I know no street. You don't know its name? I know no name. You say near a rising ground? There is a sort of little elevated bank or ground. Had the multitude from that part been dispersed? The multitude in the rear were pretty much as they had been at first. I think they were dispersing, but not so rapidly. Do you mean in the rear of the cavalry? In the rear of the hustings. The Cheshire Yeomanry's position was in the rear of the hustings? Part near amongst these people. What other troops beside the Cheshire Yeomanry did you see come onto the ground? Soon after the Cheshire Yeomanry had come in and taken their position, a troop of dragoons, I think the 15th, came in under the windows of Mr. Buxton's house. You say you think they were the 15th Cesars? They were called the 15th Dragoons. They had Waterloo medals. Where did they take up their position? Mr. Justice Holroyd. Near Mr. Buxton's house, he said. Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. Did they continue there? They halted or paused for a moment or so, a little to the left of Mr. Buxton's house, a very little to the left, almost in front, inclining to the left. What others did you see come on the ground beside them and the Cheshire Yeomanry? At the close of the business I saw some artillery driving through the place. Was there any other besides those that you saw take up any position on the ground? None on the ground. At this time was the whole of the multitude dispersed? It was dispersing most rapidly. I may say dispersed, except in partial spots. After leaving the hustings, to which part of the field did the Manchester Yeomanry go? To all parts. I think more behind the hustings and on the right. They did not come back to me so much. Do you know the Quaker's meeting house? I have heard where it is since. Then I did not know. Was it that way that they went? If you could point out in a plan, the Quaker's meeting house, I could tell you if they went that road. There is the Quaker's meeting house you will see written on the plan. Some went that way. Some of the people too dispersed in that direction, did they? The people dispersed in every direction. I am not sure whether I asked you before whether from your situation in this window if any stones or brickbats or sticks had been raised against the cavalry on their way to the hustings. You must have seen it. I think I must have seen it. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Hollock. Will you venture to swear, Mr. Stanley, that no stones nor brickbats would be thrown during the advance of the cavalry towards the hustings without your perceiving it? I can only venture to say that I saw none. I believe you have favoured the public with an account of this transaction. No, I have not. You printed or wrote something. It was in circulation among my friends. I wrote something which was never published. There was a document written by you, circulated among your friends. Among my friends. Before that time, had you ever seen yourself and read any publication, either in manuscript or print, on this subject? I had read the reports in some papers, naturally, after that time, 
and I might have seen a pamphlet printed at Manchester. Then you had seen several accounts which had been given to the world before you wrote? Yes, I saw the reports of the papers immediately after the meeting. Whose account did you see besides the reports in the paper? A Mr Phillips's. You, it seemed, entertained a different view of the transactions that had taken place upon this day from those which had been given to the world before that time? I do not know. I should say a different view from some, perhaps, and coinciding with the views of others. Coinciding with the views of some and differing from the views of others? Respecting stones. No matter what, you are a magistrate, I understand. I am not. Of neither Cheshire nor Lancashire? No. I beg your pardon. You, however, were in the magistrate's room, I think you said, at Mr Buxton's. I was. Of course you had an acquaintance with the gentlemen who were there assembled as acting magistrates of the Committee for the Counties of Chester and Lancaster. With two or three I had. Probably upon terms of intimacy with one of them. Certainly. Was that gentleman there at that time? He was. Did it occur to your mind at the time that the cavalry were sent for, because you went back to the window and saw the messenger crossing the field for the purpose of bringing them to the place, and were told, or heard, there was a rumour in the room above that the cavalry had been sent for? Did it occur, attend to my question, to you, at the time, from the observations which you had made on the subject, that the step was improper or premature? I don't think it occurred to me either one way or the other. Am I to understand from that, then, that you exercised no judgment upon the subject at that time? I certainly did exercise some judgment, some opinion on it, at that time. Having exercised some judgment upon the subject, I ask you whether in your judgment, such as you exercised upon that point, the step was either improper or premature. I saw no necessity for it. Then you deemed it premature. I saw no necessity for it. It struck you then as an unnecessary act? Certainly. Then you would go down, of course, immediately and speak to your friend upon the subject? No. Nor ever express to that friend, or to any other, at the time, your opinion with respect to the impropriety of the step? I had no other friend to speak to. Did you speak to him? I did not go down into the room again. Probably you might, being a gentleman of considerable acquaintance, meet with some friend on going home, and might ride home with some gentleman, at least part of the road. Part of the road I did. Mr Markland, I presume. I overtook Mr Markland. Did you express any opinion to Mr Markland upon these proceedings? Probably I did, but I have not the most distant recollection. I ask you, upon your oath, Mr Stanley, if you did not express to him your entire concurrence in and approbation of the measures adopted by the magistrates? I answer, upon my oath, that I do not recollect having said any such thing. Can you tell me whether you expressed any disapprobation of the measures which it had been deemed necessary to adopt? I have no recollection whatever of the conversation. Then you mean to represent to us now that your feelings upon the subject were so indifferent that you cannot tell now whether you approved or disapproved of these steps at the time? 
I have not the most distant recollection of any conversation I had with Mr. Markland. That is not an answer to my question. I ask you whether you mean to state that at this time you don't remember whether you entertained feelings of approbation or disapprobation of those steps. I thought it was a dreadful occurrence, but I hoped that there were some grounds for it. You were speaking of what you thought. It was in answer to the question. I am speaking of what you thought then. As I understand you, you cannot recall to your recollection the impression under which you laboured at the time you travelled home with Mr. Markland. I thought it a dreadful occurrence, but I hoped there were grounds for it. Did you mention that to Mr. Markland? I cannot recollect. It is very important that I should endeavour to extract from you, Mr. Stanley, without meaning the slightest disrespect to you, every fact within your knowledge on the subject. You say that after the meeting had been dispersed, the first cavalry which appeared on the ground was the Cheshire Yeomanry. Not after the meeting had dispersed, but whilst in progress to dispersion. Do you mean to state now, to the best of your recollection, that the Cheshire Yeomanry were the first cavalry advancing on the ground after that? It depends on what you call the ground. The Cheshire Yeomanry were the first, after the Manchester cavalry that advanced at the left. Tell me, according to the best of your recollection, which of these troops came first upon the ground? The Cheshire Yeomanry. But you will observe that, at this time, the disposition of the hustings occupied a good deal of my attention, and I did not expect the others. The Cheshire Yeomanry came over broken and uneven ground? I cannot tell. I observe that you use the word apparently twice in answer to two questions which were put to you, which were a repetition of the same question, whether the two lines of constables surrounded the hustings or not. I think you said... They apparently did. Apparently they did. Mr Justice Holroyd. Surround the hustings. Apparently. Mr Sergeant Hollock. Do you mean to state, then, that in your judgment, the avenue which was formed by the two lines of constables extended from the house to the hustings? At that time the impression on my mind was, and it now is, that it certainly did. But of course you won't swear that it did. I cannot swear. I can only speak to the impression on my mind. In the same way that you swear to the existence of brickbats and stones? To the non-existence. I think you say you saw Hunt come upon the ground. I saw the barouche. You saw the ladies and gentlemen both. Did you see any female? I saw a female. What was her use? I have no conception of that. Mr Justice Holroyd. Of what? Mr. Sergeant Hollock. I asked whether she was for use or show. You did not know any of the parties inside. I had not the most distant knowledge of them. You had heard of Carlyle. I heard of him in London. You have heard since he was in Manchester that day? I have heard it today in the course of another examination. I never heard it before. Hunt, when he saw the cavalry coming... I think, intimated his knowledge, his cognizance of the fact, by desiring them to give three cheers. I could not hear. There was some cheering given. There was a very loud cheer. From the hustings? From all the mob. You say, when he was addressing the mob, 
you did not hear his words. But I think whatever his words were, they excited a shout from those immediately about him, which was re-echoed with fearful animation by the rest of the multitude. Certainly, that is the impression on my mind. Those were my own words. It was tremendous, the shout. It was not so tremendous as the shout with which Hunt was received on the ground. The first was the loudest shout. And the most appalling? The first, when Hunt was received on the ground. I never heard so loud a shout. Terrific was your word? I should say terrific. You say that the people who were immediately contiguous to the hustings heard what Hunt said? I cannot say. You inferred that from their shouting? Certainly. Then that shout was re-echoed by the mob at a distance? I conceive it so. What proportion do you think of the mass of the people, with their eyes up and mouths open, looking at that man during the time, could hear one word he said? I should think no one beyond ten yards from the hustings in the bustle of such a day. That is a guess. I dare say it is a good guess, too. How do you think they would carry the resolutions at the outside, at the right flank, the left flank, and beyond the ten yards, upon the propositions made by this orator? I have no opinion to give about that. It certainly is a difficult point. It appeared to you that Hunt, as far as his voice could reach, had a pretty absolute control over his friends. They shouted as he spoke. It appeared that he was commander-in-chief. The thing never occurred to me. I cannot speak positively. Have you not an opinion that he was head and leader of the party? My opinion certainly is that he was. And now I will ask you this question, as a clergyman and as a man of character, which I believe you to be. I ask you, upon your oath, whether, in your judgment, the public tranquillity and the peace of Manchester were not endangered by a mob of that description, composed in that manner, and having such a man as Hunt at its head. Hunt and Carlyle, for instance. Hunt and Carlyle are dangerous people, and any mob under their control must be dangerous. Re-examined by Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. Do you know, Mr. Stanley, whether this meeting was under the command of either Hunt or Carlyle? No. When you say there was a shout given on the Manchester Yeomanry coming into the field, was there any other shout besides that given by the multitude? There was. Whose shout was that? The Manchester Yeomanry, the special constables, and the people round the pavement in front of our house. May I ask you whether you were terrified by these shouts? Personally, certainly not. Mr Justice Holroyd. Explain what you mean by that. I myself was not alarmed about them. Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. And whether it did not create terror and alarm? Not to me, individually, certainly not. You have said that you presented a description of what you saw at the meeting to some of your friends? I did. How soon was that written after the meeting? I can scarcely say. I should think perhaps two months, but I cannot speak accurately. It was when the impression was clear on my mind. Clear and fresh in your recollection. Will you have the goodness to tell me whether you heard or saw any person read the Riot Act? I neither heard it read nor saw it read. Mr. Sergeant Hollock. If it was read, you did not hear it. 
I did not hear it. Mr. Sergeant Hollock. If it should turn out to have been read, and read loudly, there might have been something else done. But that is conclusion. That is reason. Mr. Evans. Your lordship has on your notes that McKennell said that he did not hear the riot act read. Mr. Sergeant Cross. He said so. Mr. Justice Holroyd. Yes, I have. Mr. Sergeant Blackburn. Then that is my case, my lord. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.